In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today we celebrate the great feast of the Epiphany, the appearance of our Lord. The day that the three wise men from the east, from the land of the rising sun, come to worship the Saviour, the King of the Jews. It's a feast day which has a huge significance for us because it shows us that the birth of our Lord is not just for a small group of people who happened to be on hand at the time. In a way, those three wise men represent the whole world, the world of the Gentiles, who would later be part of the church. And it's interesting to think that just as Easter, the Easter season closes with Pentecost, which could seem like the ending of Easter, but in fact it's the beginning of the, the church's life, her launching out to the whole world, to the world of the Gentiles, with all those languages that the apostles were able to make themselves understood in on that dramatic morning. In the same way, Christmas time ends almost with the feast of the Epiphany, because, and just like Pente, just like Pentecost, somehow is a beginning. So too, Epiphany is is a beginning. It's not so much the end of Christmas as the beginning of the, the, the spread of this great news, this good news that we the shepherds have heard, to the whole world. And. So it's, you know, the time after Epiphany and the time after Pentecost has a real meaning for us in that sense. It's, it's the start of uh, a whole new uh, world, a whole new creation, which in those, on those two feast days come, becomes almost uh, specified. This is the moment when the, our salvation becomes spread out and available to the whole world. So that's, if you like, the, the, the context of the feast day, I think, just like the context of, of Pentecost. But anyway, getting back to what we're celebrating uh, today, the wise men arrive into Jerusalem saying, where, where is he who has been born 
king of the Jews? That is their question. We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The star had got them to set out from their country in the east on what we can assume was a long and difficult journey. Most journeys at the time were difficult and presumably this was a long one too. And they had come with all of that, uh, their effort and their ingenuity, trying to work out what this star could mean. They were clearly well able to read the signs in the heavens and they felt that they had seen a really special sign now and they wanted to get to see where this star was leading them to. So here they are. They have arrived into um, Jerusalem and they're ready to uh, ask this question. Where, where is he? And they assume that everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to be uh, clued in to this uh, new king of the Jews and will be able to tell them uh, what's going on. And it's, uh, it's, I suppose they were slightly surprised when they could sense there was a, a kind of uh, puzzlement and more than puzzlement, uh, um, troubled. Uh, people were perturbed by this. Herod the king uh, is, um, uh, is perturbed and they probably, being wise men, would have realised this. What's, what's the problem here? But anyway, they, they get the information and they, they move on. And like many mountain climbers and mountain walkers, hill walkers, know that at first the, the peak that you're aiming at, the summit, can be in view, but as you get closer to it, it, it disappears from you. Or you realise there's another uh, peak. It's not quite the summit yet. And uh, you're still looking, oh, there's the, it's still further on. And uh, well, th- this is their situation. They've got to Jerusalem. They kind of think, well, this must be it. And, but it's, well, it's not so clear. And Herod has to work out, has to get the, prophet, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests to explain to him and to the, the wise men where they should look further for the, um, the king of the Jews. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's been promised? So they, they ask the question, where? And they, need, they needed help and they, they get help because the priests and the scribes tell him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will govern my people Israel. So off they go, and they head off on their um, on the route. But le- behind they have left uh, quite a little bit of perturbation and trouble in people's minds. It was not the best time, you might say, for this all to happen, because Herod and the his fellow 
rulers or sort of puppet rulers of the Romans and they felt extremely precarious and they knew that at any time the Romans could just declare direct rule and set him aside. So it was awkward for him to be confronted with the possibility that there was this new king of the Jews who would be you know, sweeping him aside, causing problems. So this was dangerous talk, the king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They got quite a shock when, when they heard this from these uh, Eastern strange um, gentlemen, these wise men. And I, I think you could sort of say, whenever our Lord asks us for something, it's never the best time. We, you know, whether it's something small or something big, there's always a problem involved. It's always slightly awkward because our Lord really does bring us out of our comfort zone. And his, he, he's, because he's got the, the right to, to do that. And he's asking us for more. And he's bringing, he's giving us more, in fact. And in order to give us more, he has to lead us beyond what we're used to. And think of Abraham. He was a comfortable, uh, wealthy man living in Ur of the Chaldees. And he has to leave all this behind and follow the prophecy, the message, the promise that he's been given. But it's a wonderful promise that all nations of the world, the earth are going to bless themselves in his name. We call him our father in faith in the Roman canon. So it's a wonderful promise that's been made to him, but at the same time, it's, it's asking him for something kind of awkward because he's, you know, he's, a self, he's a man who's made his fortune and he could be sort of sitting back and just resting on his laurels and on his money and his status. And the Lord now asks him to set out. But this is a bad time to set out. And he's an old man too. So please... Well, that's the way that God works. You know, he, he's, he wants to give us something really big and it does involve us setting out in one way or in another. So in many times during our lives, we'll find ourselves just setting out as those wise men did. And that's, that's normal. We can't be too surprised that God asks us to set out. And it's never the best time. There's always a problem. There's always, it's never the ideal moment. We can't be too surprised about that because God wants to give us so much and what he asks us for is tiny in comparison, but it can seem a little bit difficult. There's a lovely little phrase in one of the um, hymns in the Liturgy of the Hours for Epiphany. It's referring to Herod. And it says, more or less, he hasn't come to take away earthly goods, but to give us heavenly ones. Herod, of course, just sees the danger to his earthly throne and his security. That's all he can see. But God wants to give us much, much more, even from the natural point of view. If you seek the kingdom of God and his justice first, then all the other things will be added. If only Herod had realized that, that Jesus doesn't come to 
take anything away from us. He wants to give us so much. What he asks us for, even though at the time it can seem just awkward, is nothing in comparison to what he wants to give. So Lord, help us to see that whenever we're faced with a challenge, when it's a little bit difficult for us to just go for it. That you want to give us much more than you ask. Anyway, the, the wise men have moved on. They got good advice, even if it was given with a bad intention by Herod and his, uh, his staff, to put it that way. And the star reappears. When they had heard the king, St. Matthew tells us in the Gospel, they went their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. So the star reappears to give them strength and inspiration. And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the star. I'm sure when they got to the house too, they rejoiced exceedingly, but we're told that as soon as they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. St. Matthew really puts it quite strongly. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's underlining something about our faith. And that is that if we're following the star of our faith, if we're following Christ, we will be very happy. There's a happiness there that nothing else can really give us. Joy is sort of drawn out of us when we meet Christ. Even if we're only meeting him as in the star, the inspiration of our lives, we don't have the same physical contact with him that the wise men eventually did or do we because really they also had to believe they clearly did believe and we need to believe and once we believe well we're receiving the same we're meeting the same christ that they met he he is also our savior and we encounter him even if it's only through the sacraments Well, only, maybe it's not a good way of putting it, but if it's through the sacraments, through faith, through prayer, through just encountering our Lord in our lives, that's the great source of joy. And it's a sort of a test, in a way, of the truth of our encounter with our Lord. Does it make us happy? Because Jesus wants us to be happy. That's the whole purpose of his coming, to be with us, to give us joy.
He says that on many occasions, especially at the Last Supper. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, um, a joy that no one will be able to take away from you, all of those promises. There, it's not just a joy, you know, being in good humour, things turning out well, but it's the deeper joy that only Jesus can actually give us. So when we have that encounter with him, it does give rise to joy, even in the midst of pain and sorrow, disappointment and difficulty, which can also affect us. But there's a deeper level, a deeper well of happiness and cheerfulness, which Jesus can give us when we encounter him. They arrive then, they going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's another aspect of what happens to people who encounter Christ. They become generous. They want to give. And their joy, in fact, comes from giving as they rejoiced and, and gave to, to, to Christ, I suppose, to Mary and Joseph. They gave their, their gifts, symbolic gifts, gold to a king, frankincense to God, and myrrh, prefiguring Christ's anointing at his death. So, Lord, may I too discover this value of making a gift of myself, of my life. That that's when I really discover it, when I give it away. As Vatican II puts it, man is the only creature that God made for well, for his own sake and yet he only really discovers himself by making a gift of himself. It's a paradox but it's a really happy paradox. So let's give ourselves away in different small ways um, bit by bit and discover that joy of course, it works both ways too, because the happier we are, the more likely we are to be generous, to want to give. And then this, of course, feeds our happiness when we do. Joy and generosity are drawn out of us when we meet Christ and let him into our lives. The wise men are seeking. We have seen his star in the east, have come to worship him. Where is he? They're, they're looking for Jesus, for the King of the Jews. 
that's, if you like, on the outside. But more profoundly, it's Jesus who is seeking them. And he finds them. He found them, in fact, in their work. Or hobby, I don't know, was gazing at the stars and calibrating the heavens. Was that their hobby or was it their, their work? But either way, that's where Jesus finds them. And maybe that's a hint for you and me as well, that he wants to find us in what we do every day. He, he is there in, in that activity, in those relationships, in that task which we have, which we get sort of used to and we just take it for granted. There it is, or there they are, the people that we, we know and that we serve and that we love. But actually, Christ is in the midst of them. Christ is in the midst of our task, the effort that we need to make, the tedium at times, in the sense that it's the same every day and it's not exciting in a way. He is there in all of those situations and it's up to us to discover him. St. Maria used to say that if you don't find Christ in your everyday life, you won't find him anywhere. We could imagine that you know, we'll meet our Lord in some spectacular event or some spectacular heroic action that we perform. But we may never get that chance, but we do get the chance every day to meet him in ordinary matters. And they give rise to plenty of generosity too. We can give of ourselves in those situations, in our work, in our relaxation, in our families, in our friends, in our social life. He's there. So let's make it easy for him to find us in those things. Let's not waste those things in which we do put the best of ourselves, a lot of ourselves into, well, to realize that we can discover Jesus in, there, in those things, in those settings. Look at the shepherds, they too were he found them in the midst of their work. So it's, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence. They both let him find them. So let's not pass over the signs which God sends us every day. Prayers that he answers for us. And even prayers that he doesn't seem to answer. Or where he answers in a different way than we were hoping. But all of those things can be good signs. They can tell us, be telling us something. The inspirations that we get as we pray, for instance. Um, or even as we just reflect on life. Because prayer is reflecting on our day and our life and our work bit like the way Our Lady in the Gospel of St. Luke, she's always 
treasuring those things up in her heart and pondering on them. So you get the impression nothing that happened passed Our Lady by. She got great mileage out of all those events in the Gospel. Maybe that's why we know them so well, because she passed them on to St. Luke, directly or indirectly. So may we also be able to reflect on things, and um, because I suppose that is how we will discover the presence of God in our lives. We need to have a bit of a reflection, we need to stop sometimes and see him. And finally, they, they, they arrive. They, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Pope Benedict liked to talk about that falling down. I presume they fell on their knees to worship him. It's a pretty universal sign of veneration and worship. And we like to show our veneration, our adoration of God with outward signs. How we bow or genuflect or bless ourselves because we're body and soul and our bodies need to be part of the package as well as our souls. It's not enough just to be thinking about things. We need to actually express them and that outwardly. So all of those gestures are important because they, they, they tell us something. They, they allow our body to teach our soul somehow. Um, even just that fact of that gesture, that bow or that genuflection or that sign of the cross. You might say, oh, it's just, it's just a mechanical gesture. Well, it needn't necessarily be all that mechanical at all. It may teach our souls to savour what's actually happening here when I bless myself or when I just show outwardly what I really believe. It helps that belief, in fact. It makes it more sure and secure. We don't just live in our heads. And Mary is great at, she answers that prayer that we often say to her in the Hail Holy Queen, the Salve Regina. It says, after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. But she doesn't wait until after this our exile to show him to us. She, she shows him to us all the time. And Because every time we look to her, say the rosary, or pray to her in any way, the Angelus, etc. Every time we do that, we are, she is showing her son to us. We're getting to know him better as well. And I suppose we could ask her, we could repeat that prayer a few times, from you know, day to day, show unto us the fruit of your womb, Jesus. I'm sure it's a prayer she likes to hear. And she will certainly be happy to reply to it, to, to, to answer it 
positively and, and show him to us more deeply, help us to get to know him better. Because who better than she to introduce him to us and us to him? So as we finish this on this feast of the Epiphany, we too can go into the house and see the child with Mary, his mother, and fall down and worship him. I give you thanks, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.